We are in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I hope this morning as, as that song was being sung, she, she sang, I know Jesus loves me. But did you get the part before that? How does she know that? His word. That was the line before that. That's what this scripture memory thing is about. I hope now that when you saw that, when she sang that, the words were on the screen, if you were watching, his word tells me that Jesus loves me. I hope that what came to your mind was passages that said that to you. Did, did, did scripture come to you? Did you think, ah, oh, what, what in your word tells me that, Lord? What comes to mind as I, as I sing that or we hear that? That's what this program's about. That stuff coming to our minds. Those scriptures readily there, the way God put our brains together. Just coming. We see them. It, it is no value to you this morning for me to say, just say, Jesus loves you. That, that, is, that is not valuable in and of itself. Unless I tie that to his word, to his revelation. It means nothing that I say that. It means nothing if it's not centered someplace else. And for you just to kind of try to whip it up, an emotion to think Jesus loves me, I did that early in my Christian life. I just tried to whip stuff up emotionally. That's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about a greater joy than when uh, than wine and, or grain and new wine abound. That's not what I'm talking about. That, that will lead you to disaster ultimately if that's how you think about what I'm talking about there. The deepest joys, the deep soul-strengthening joys I'm talking about are the joys that come from the truth of God's revelation. The gospel is the pinnacle of that, is the apex of that revelation. That's where I want those joys to come from. The deepest and longest-lasting and most satisfying joys come there. And I I appreciate it. I didn't know she was going to sing this morning. That That was perfect. For what I was talking about. We're back in Philippians. We're getting, we're getting close to the end of Philippians here now. We've got this week and next week. And then we will be done in Philippians for now. So I want you to go back to the passage that Jason, Pastor Jason just read. I want to remind you of some things. 
uh, the context of this now a bit, uh, particularly the place from which Paul is writing this. Not only his location of where he's writing from and his situation specifically at that moment, but the life of three decades that what he's writing here flows out of. You know, we're, we're, we are of where we came from. And you can't understand what Paul is saying here unless you go back three decades to realize what he came through in those three decades that led him to write this. Paul now writes this from being about, well, actually being in his fourth year of imprisonment in Rome. That's, that's the immediate context of what he's writing here to us. But you've got to go back now, three decades. Let me go back three decades. Here's where it starts. Immediately after Paul's conversion, this comes from John MacArthur in a commentary he's written on Philippians. But let me read him. He says, immediately after his conversion, Paul's bold, fearless proclamation of the gospel aroused the ear, ire, ire of, Damas- uh, of Damascus's Jewish population. They sought to kill him, and he was forced to flee the city by being lured from the city wall at night in a basket. Later, he was forced to flee from Iconium, was pelted with stones and left for dead at Lystra, was beaten and thrown into jail at Philippi, was forced to flee from Thessalonica after preaching touched off a riot, went from there to Berea, from where he was also forced to flee, was mocked and ridiculed by the Greek philosophers at Athens, was hauled before the Roman proconsul at Corinth and faced both Jewish opposition and rioting Gentiles at Ephesus. As he was about to sail from Greece to Palestine, a Jewish plot against his life forced him to change his travel plans. On the way to Jerusalem, he met the Ephesian elders at Miletus and declared to them, Bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit, God, third person of the Trinity, except the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me that in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. I mean, he was already in them, but but what he looked forward to was no better. And God had told him that. He knew that. Some way God had revealed that to him by the Holy Spirit. When he got to Jerusalem, he was recognized in the temple by the Jews from Asia Minor, savagely beaten by a frenzied mob and saved from certain death when Roman soldiers arrived on the scene and arrested him. While Paul was in custody at Jerusalem, the Jews formed yet another plot against him, his life, prompting the Roman commander to send him under heavy guard to the governor at Caesarea. After his case dragged on without resolution for two years and two Roman governors, Paul exercised his right as a Roman citizen and appealed to Caesar. After an eventful trip, which included being shipwrecked in a violent storm, Paul arrived at Rome. And now we're getting close to the end of those three decades. And as he wrote Philippians, the apostle was in his fourth year of Roman custody, awaiting Emperor Nero's final decision in his case. And what he writes is, I'm writing this for your progress and joy in the faith. So you see, the joy I'm talking about there is not a flight, flippant, trite joy tied to circumstance. Paul wouldn't have said, I'm writing for your joy, if he wasn't experiencing joy. He talked about joy a lot in Philippians. And it flowed out of those three decades and more right now as he was in his fourth year of imprisonment in Rome. That's the context of what these words come from now as he writes to us beginning in chapter 4. Here, the words that he writes. And what had happened now here is, 
as Paul was there in that fourth year of imprisonment, the, the, the uh, Philippian church had sent some things to him to help him as he was in imprisonment. And Paul was grateful for that. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that at now at length you've revived your concern. And what he meant by that was in the past they had helped him in other places at other times, the Philippian church had, but they didn't have any way to do it until now again. And so they reopened that, that pipeline of help to Paul and he was receiving it from them and he thanked them for it. But he did it this way. He did it with two things in mind. First of all, he wanted them to make sure that he was was not relying on them. In other words, it was okay that they hadn't been able to help him and it was good that they were helping him now, but that was not, it was okay if it didn't even continue on because he wasn't soliciting their help in the future. He wasn't milking the situation. That's not why he wrote. He wrote to thank them because he had found a strength and a contentment and a joy that didn't depend on whether one of the churches that he had been at was sending him aid. And that's where we pick up this story now. If you read it, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that it now at length you have received, revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how it is to be brought low and I know how it is to abound. In every and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul had learned some things. And what I titled what I'm sharing this morning is he, he found a secret. But it wasn't a hidden secret. It's not a hidden secret to us. It's a secret out in the open. That word that he used was the, the word that's used for kind of secret societies of that day, a secret that they might have found in the initiation process. But Paul didn't mean it in the sense that it was hidden. He, he just meant that I've learned some stuff. I've, I've learned some stuff. And what I want to do here now is to help us to get a view of, of what Paul had learned. What did Paul know? And, and what did he say in light of what he knew here to us that caused such contentment and joy even in the diff most difficult of circumstances that he found himself in, in great need. Paul knew what it was to be content. Um, so that's what we want to do this morning. Just, just look at what those are. And I begin by going back. You aren't surprised at that, I'm sure at all. Go back to chapter 1. You can't, you can't know a book without going back and forth. You can't really know without... without really chewing on it again and again. And so I go back to chapter 1 and verse 19. The first thing that Paul knew, the first thing, the first primary thing he had to come to grips with as he was in these three decades of what we just read and following Christ and in the middle of that being told that even greater hardship awaited him, what he had to settle in his life and what he had settled in his life was what he writes in Philippians in 1.19. It's what we began with the very first Sunday we began this series. We began here. And he said this, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, this will turn out for my deliverance. Um, Paul knew what he's saying there is that he, he had learned, and we'll come to this a little, this isn't the first point, but we'll come back to it, so don't forget it. He, he, he talks about the, the Spirit of God helping him, providing something. That God, God was the one who was the helper. 
but but it it isn't where I want to begin because what he goes on to say is as is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but will full courage now as always Christ will be honored or Christ will be magnified in my body that's the theme that we began with that's why we began the first Sunday with that Paul's desire the thing that he had first settled is that his life was first and foremost about honoring or magnifying or glorifying Jesus Christ. And we have talked about that often, but we're not talking about microscope. We're not taking something very small, looking through a microscope, making God bigger. But what he was talking about, that my life would be a telescope. A telescope takes something very big and shows us really how big it is. That's what a telescope does versus a microscope. And what Paul wanted his life to be and what he had determined his life would be would be a telescope so that as people look through his life, they would see more fully who Christ was. He had settled that issue. That was the goal of his life. That was the passion of his life. That was what was most important in all of his life. That's where he started the day. That's where he ended the day. That was what was most important. His comfort wasn't most important. His deliverance wasn't most important. That was most important. And if we're going to understand this issue of contentment, we have to, we have to stay there. We have to learn that as we begin, as we go through our day, as we end, that is the goal of life. That's what it means in this verse right here where it says, so whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, it's all-inclusive. We do it all to the glory of God. We do it all to magnify God. And God is most magnified in the face of Christ. That's why Jesus said that I might magnify or honor Jesus Christ. You see, that is what it is to be a Christian. To follow Christ. That should be our mantra as we walk with Christ. That everything we do, we do to the glory of God. And, and my definition of sin is, is if we don't. If we don't eat and drink and whatever we do to the glory of God, even good things, if it's not for the glory of God, that's sin. Because that is, that is what we're called to. That's, that's what should always be at the forefront of our lives. And if we're going to learn contentment, we have to start there. We have to know where we're headed. And that's where Paul was always headed in his life. And the way another has said it, that Paul's life was about making much of Christ. Much of Christ. Is that where you begin? If you're struggling with contentment, that's probably not as clear as it should be in your life. The second thing that Paul knew was something we've said often and, and part of Paul's life, I think, as well. Paul knew that the giver gets the glory. That isn't original with me. It comes from another, but it is certainly being woven into the fabric of my ministry. The giver gets the glory. That's why that other verse in your bulletin is there every week. No, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God like this who what? Who acts, who works, doesn't do violation to the text, who works on behalf of those who wait for Him. Why is, is that so important to get that? Because God works for His people because the giver gets the glory. He, he, he comes to the aid of His people. He brings, he brings grace to His people. And as people see Him bringing grace to us and strength to us and help to us, 
they glorify our Father in heaven as they see Him as the source of that. We'll come more to that in a minute. If you've been around long enough, you understand how to connect all those dots, but we have people in and out all the time in our congregation. So Paul knew that the giver gets the glory, so he was willing to live in places where God could be clearly seen as the giver. You see, that's how he was learning to be content in those three decades, because he had great need. At times had a tremendous need. But I think Paul understood that, that Christ could be seen more clearly oftentimes in those places because he had to fully depend on him and Christ had to come. God had to come and strengthen him and help him and give him grace. Now, in verse 13, we see that. I, I didn't just pull that out of the air, but we begin to see it where Paul says in chapter 13 or verse 13 of chapter 4 because he says in every circumstance whether uh, facing plenty or hunger or abundance and need he says I can do all things through him who strengthens me that's where it comes from giver getting the glory that's part of the passages that bolster that thought in our lives the all things is this if you want to define you have to be careful you can get great disillusionment if you get that all things right. And, and I see sometimes that verse pasted on all kinds of posters sometimes. And I, and I think it distorts the message. It causes us to, to take a text that is out of context. The context of the all things that Paul is talking about here, the all things uh, is to live in plenty or need particularly in need, to the glory of God. When, when he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, his idea of his goal, his mantra is what? To magnify Christ. And so what he's saying is, I can do all things to make much of Christ and to magnify him, whether I have lots of stuff and all my needs are being met right then that particular time, or I'm in great need and have much lacking as regards to earthly comforts are concerned. The all things was that whether in plenty or in need, Christ could be made much of. That's what it's talking about when it says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. All things that make much of Christ. You see, again, that's why contentment could be found even in need for Paul. Really, another way to say that is that whatever is God's will, whether we eat or drink or do all to I think that's God's will. Whatever the will of God is for my life, you can take this with you. Whatever the will of God is for your life, that you can be confident that God will strengthen you in it. Paul knew that. Whatever God's will for my life, whether plenty or need, God would strengthen me. All things God asks me to do. Anything God asks you to do, you can be confident. You can take this verse because God wants to strengthen His people. He wants to be the giver of His people so that much can be made of Christ in that doing His will. The third thing that I think Paul understood is that he properly defined need. He properly defined need because it says God will supply every need of ours according to the riches of the glory of Christ a little later in that passage. Um, when Paul was talking about being in need, he properly defined need. 
And he reemphasized it to the Philippian people down in verse, if you look, and God, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He, he didn't distort that word need. He knew what it was. And the need is this. We've talked about this before, but I think the definition of that need is, goes back to what I just said in the previous point, that our need, our need is to have all of the grace all of the strength, I think they're synonymous, strength from God, all of the grace, all of the strength we need to live or die making much of Christ. To live or die to the glory of God. That's what Paul defined need as. Because his goal was what? We started out. My goal is to magnify Christ. Whether I live or die, to magnify Him, to make much of Him. So Paul had a great confidence that whatever it was going to take, To magnify Christ, whether that was living in plenty, holding it lightly, or living in great need, not having what I need, that I would have enough grace. I would have enough grace. That's, uh, you can take that verse and cling to it in that context. Now you get, get broader than that, I think you get on slippery ground with that verse. But Paul wasn't on slippery ground. And then, now what I want to do is I want to take some time looking at some other scriptures because the fourth point I want to say to you, and hear me here, is this. He knew those first three things, but the fourth thing he knew, Paul knew what Jesus meant when Jesus said, not a hair on your head will perish. Now, you've got to look at another text for this. So turn with me to Luke chapter 21. And we're going to walk through some passages. Luke chapter 21. Hang with me here because it's going to take me a while to tie what I just said to this fully. But I think once I do it, you'll have a greater confidence when I make the statement that you can be confident that God will give you all of the grace, all of the strength to make much of Christ, whether in plenty or in need. Now, in this verse, listen to this verse here. Listen to what it says. Clearly, carefully listen because it says this. Jesus is speaking. You will be delivered. He's talking to his disciple. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. The clear implication is some of you will die. You'll be put to death. All of the disciples but one died a violent death. You will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Okay? So far, so good. But then he says, but not a hair on your head will perish. What in the world does he mean? You'll be hated, you'll be killed, some of you, but not a hair in your head will perish. Do you read scripture and say, what in the world does that mean? That doesn't make sense. Is that how you take scripture? Do you, do you fight for what that means? What does it mean? I mean, Jesus didn't say things he didn't mean. Jesus didn't fly off the cuff when he spoke. He meant to say that. He meant to put those two things together. You will die, but not a hair in your head will perish. So what, what does it mean? What is Jesus saying there? Turn to another passage. Romans 8. Let's, let's, let's fight to understand what he's saying in context of other scripture. When you're difficult, you had a difficult passage, the, the rule of interpretation is you, you compare it to other passages. You try to find what what is being said by comparison. 
So Romans chapter 8. Look what it says there, beginning at verse 35. Let me read it to you here this morning. It begins by this. The part we want to look at is verse 35. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think the way you understand not a hair in your head will perish is you take passages like this passage where it says not anything can separate us from the love of God, even death. I think that's what Jesus is saying in the passage that we read, that some of you will die, but not a hair in your head will perish eternally. Eternally. What I get from that is difficult things come into the lives of believers. It isn't that we're immune from them. They come. But ultimately, none of that, none of that can separate us. None of that can eternally separate us from God. It's interesting in this particular passage now, stay with me here. There's a couple of things. As we just read in in Romans, it says famine or nakedness. Famine or nakedness. Now, here's where I want to make the point. If you misinterpret what it says in the book of Philippians, in that passage where it says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. If you don't get the need defined correctly, you think, well, what's this famine and nakedness stuff? What's this starving to death stuff? I thought God would meet all of my needs. I thought that's what he promised. And can you see how you get set up in that? If you're not careful, what about people who starve to death for Christ? Are they not spiritual enough? Do they not have enough faith? Are they subpar Christians? Well, that's that's not the case. So you see, the, the thing that we have to see is Making sure we get the promise right. God didn't promise there wouldn't be famine. He didn't promise there wouldn't be nakedness. He didn't promise that we wouldn't die and be killed for the faith. He just said not a hair on your head will perish. He just said nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Those are the promises that we need to look at. We need to be careful. Now, Now turn with me to one more, which will just further muddy the water for a minute, I think. Matthew chapter 6. Well, you can say, but what about Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25? We just talked about famine. We talked about nakedness. But why did Jesus say what he said in Matthew chapter 6? Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not like your life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds 
of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. And then if you go down a little farther into verse 31, it says, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Famine and nakedness kind of relate to that, don't they? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So he's going to, does that mean he's going to give them to us? So there won't be famine or nakedness, but he just talked about famine or nakedness. Do you see? Do you see that dilemma? So when it says he's going to give them to us, how do we reconcile all of that? That's really why I took you here. How do we reconcile all of that? I think we reconcile it with what it says, that not a hair on your head will perish. Because ultimately, I think what it means when it says he will meet all of my needs in Christ Jesus and he will strengthen me in the midst of need is that he will give us all the grace and all the strength we need to make much of Christ. And you see, that entails the fact that when when pressing great need comes into my life, when the brokenness of this world comes, or maybe persecution from the outside. I, I think both are possible. When those, when those pressures come and, and we get the squeeze starts to happen, I think the confidence we can bank on in this passage and what Paul had come to know and why it brought such great contentment and joy in his heart was that he knew that God would give him all of the grace he needed to not blasphemy the name of his God. To not accuse his God. To not have his faith stripped away from him. To not have his hope put asunder. To not go back on his ultimate desire to make much of Christ. You see, that's what, what to the nth degree, would make much of Christ in Paul's life a sham, wouldn't it? That when he faces the brokenness of this age and the brokenness of this world, if that brokenness can come in such a way and to such a dimension that the grace of God cannot push out the danger of him giving up his faith, turning away from what the desire of his heart is to make much of Christ, to defaming the name of Christ in the midst of that pressure cake. You see, Paul had learned, I think, that God was enough, that his grace would come, and that he who began a good work in his life would bring that work to completion, even in the most horrific of circumstances, because God had promised not a hair of his head would perish. Now, now Paul knew that didn't mean death. He had seen other believers die. He'd seen Stephen die, hadn't he? He held Stephen's garments as he died. Paul knew that didn't mean physical death. It meant spiritual death. It meant that God would persevere in him in such a way, even in great need, that he could make much of Christ 
by the grace of God. And people would see that. They would see that it was God strengthening this man who had great need, who had every reason to curse God, but didn't. Continued to desire to make much of Christ. That's that's where you can bank on in those verses. That's where you can live. And that's what begins to help us to live the kind of lives of contentment and joy that I think God wants us to live. Let me give you one more passage and then we're going to close this morning. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I, I hope these are the paradigms in which you, you operate the, the paradigms which Paul operated in, that you see these truths in Scripture. Look, look what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 52, or excuse me, verse 32. Let you turn there, as many as are turning. Listen, just listen to this. Now, what more can I say? This is the, the faith chapter. By, for time would fail me to tell you of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Japheth, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. There's lots of triumph in that, isn't it? Lots of plenty in that. I mean, there was some some need, but plenty. You're reading plenty on that part of the chapter, aren't you? I mean, they turn back stuff. God came through in those kinds of ways, which He can and does. But read on, my friends. Others, others suffered mocking and flogging. And even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy of. Doesn't sound like they were second class Christians. They didn't have enough faith, does it? It says the world was not worthy of them. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, all these, both the ones who had triumph. And those who had great need, all of these, although commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had promised something better for us, that apart from, from us, they should be made perfect. In other words, you see, what God promises is not always to fix every problem in our life. That, that's not what He promised. It's just not what He promised. I'll meet all of your needs according. Define need rightly. The need we have as believers, the need Paul knew he had foremost over everything, and that's what the need he's talking about here, is that Christ might be magnified, that I might be able to make much of Christ in my life so that a world could see that, clearly see that. And the way Christ was made much of in most of Paul's life was when he was within need. And people saw that his God was enough. The grace of his God was enough for Paul to continue on, to persevere in righteousness, to not blaspheme the name of his God, but to honor it. I hope that's where we live as believers.
because in that we understand what it means, I think, in Romans chapter 8. And I close with this as Matthew comes to lead us. Remember in Romans chapter 8, he said, in all of this we are conquerors. Is that what it said? Remember that? In all this, in famine and nakedness and sword, all that we're conquerors. Is that what it said? It said we're more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors. What it means to be a conqueror is you nullify the purpose of the enemy. You nullify the purpose of the enemy if you're a conqueror. But if you're more than conquerors, one has said, it makes the enemy serve your purposes. And that's exactly what God does for His children. It makes the enemy serve His purpose. You see, the enemy will come and he will try to do everything he can to rip faith out of your life. You see, what the enemy of our souls is, is he's a faith eater. That's what he's after. He's after your faith. He's after your faith. He's after you to do everything He can to not let you make much of Christ. And our greatest need is to have the grace, all the grace we need, to be able from the beginning of the day to the end to make much of Christ, to magnify Christ. Paul said, May I in no way be ashamed. No way be ashamed. But whether I live or die, that Christ might be honored, that He might be magnified, that He might be glorified, seen for who He is by my life. That's what it is to follow Christ. That's first and foremost what it is. You see, that's why you've got to settle that first. None of the other stuff I said makes any sense unless you settle that first. Is that how you wake up in the morning? You want to honor Him? I pray it is. I pray more and more. It is, the, it is the ethos of this body that we would magnify Christ so that people might see, spiritually see, and savor, and join us in proclaiming, which is to make much of Christ. That's the way I think it's intended to be. And I pray God is working that in your soul this morning. Let's stand and sing together. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way, the sin that brought this joy and mine had led me to the
as we close this morning out of First Peter. It's talking about serving God, living out our faith for Him. This is what Peter says. You listen to what Jesus said, what Paul said. This is Peter saying the same thing. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In other words, if you're going to serve, do it by the strength God supplies, because Peter knew too, the giver gets the glory. Because this is what he said. In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Why do it that way? So that much can be made of Christ. Much can be made of Him. The world is hungry for that breed of Christianity. That's what will cause them to scratch their heads. That's what will cause them to be hungry. When they really see, when we say all we need is Christ, is a reality in our lives. A daily reality from the beginning of the day to the end. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us not to run away from need. We spend a lot of our life running away from the very thing that will probably most brightly, not probably, but will most brightly make much of Christ. Help us, Father. Help us to live lives dependent on Your grace so that the world might see and savor this Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.